Y'all sound lovely. I like hearing you sing. Give yourselves a round of applause. It sounds great. Yeah. That was some worship, right? So now you ready to hear a word? You know I like to hear you. Make some noise. You ready to hear a word? My, here we go. I like the sound of that. If you're just now joining us, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to have you. And we're in the midst of this series where we are taking a look at really one of the Bible's most beloved characters, David, right? The shepherd boy who, who eventually became king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel. And there are all sorts of reasons why we love David, but I think one of the reasons why we love him so much is, is because not only is he somebody for us to look up to, somebody for us to admire, but I think he's somebody that we can really relate to. I mean, on the one hand, David did a lot of great things, right? He slayed the giant. He did some remarkable things, but at the same time, David blew it. He messed up, not just once, he messed up a lot, and maybe even in some more remarkable ways. In fact, I love the quote. I think Pastor Jeff shared this with you the first week of the series. It's this quote about David from Eugene Peterson. He is the, the guy who wrote the message uh, translation of the Bible. He also write, wrote this really great book on the life of David. It's called Leap Over a Wall. And here's what he says about David. He says, in the company of David, we don't feel inadequate because we know we could never do it that well. It's just the opposite. In the company of David, we find someone who does it as badly as or worse than we do, but who in the process doesn't quit, doesn't withdraw from God. I love this part. David isn't an ideal life, but an actual life. David is a person on whom nothing of God is lost. We read David to cultivate a sense of reality for a true life, an honest life, a God-aware and God-responsive life. Uh, David's life is not an ideal life, but it's an actual life. And it's in the scriptures for you and I, not only to just admire, but his life is there for you and I to find ourselves in, to learn from, in the hopes of following his lead and chasing after the heart of God. Now, for the past couple of weeks, we've been really sort of looking at, at some of David's better moments, right? Some of the things that made David so great. Well, today we're going to turn the corner a bit, and I want us to take a look at really David's worst moment. Again, there's more than one. If you read about David's life, he, he, he messed up a lot. But this is perhaps the moment that when David messed up, he's, he's best known for. Right? We're, of course, talking about the adultery he had with Bathsheba, and then the, the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and I'm, I'm sure that, that a lot of us are, are probably pretty familiar with this story, but just in case, I'm going to give you a quick synopsis, quick overview of what went down, and then we're going to come back and zero in on a few details. But the story begins with David. He's on the roof of his palace, sort of hanging out, checking things out, and he notices across the way there's this woman, Bathsheba. She's on her roof, and she's bathing. Now, at first, we think this is sort of sketchy, right? I mean, when's the last time you took a bath on your roof? Probably not, probably hadn't happened, right? And, and, and at first we hear about this and it sounds, sounds kind of sketchy, like she's doing something sketchy. She's not. The kind of bathing that, that the scripture speaks of is actually a form of ceremonial cleansing that was a part of ancient Israel's worship practice. But David sees her and the scriptures tell us she's beautiful. And he decides he wants to see her. And so he sends somebody to go and find out who she is, they come back and, and tell him that she's Bathsheba, she's married to this guy Uriah. Well, David decides that he wants her to come and pay a visit. So he sends someone to go and get her, they bring her back, and they end up sleeping together. Now, what we have to understand is that this was not a request Bathsheba could have refused. 
I mean, this is, this is the most powerful person in the country. This is the most powerful person in Bathsheba's world. This is the king. You don't say no to the king. What we have to understand, this was not consensual. This was a disgusting abuse of power on David's part. And after it's over, he just sends her home. Go on back to life as usual. And he thinks he's, you know, done something. Nobody's going to hear about it. Nobody's going to find out. Well, then he gets word back from Bathsheba that she's pregnant. She's with child. It is his child. And here's where it really all falls apart. David then plans, he works all this out in such a manipulative way for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who was a loyal soldier in David's army. He has the commanders put Uriah at the front lines in one of the most fierce battles. And he says, when the, when the fighting really, really gets hot, here's what I want you to do. I want you everybody to back away, leave him there by himself. And this is what happens. And Uriah is killed in action. And once again, David comes back. He thinks he's taking care of this, right? He thinks, he's, he, he thinks he's gotten away with it, but he didn't. And we never do, do we? Because then God sends prophet Nathan. Nathan comes in and he confronts David in this really, really powerful way. If you've got some time, I encourage you to read through this narrative. It starts in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But he confronts David, and remarkably, David comes clean. Maybe here's what separates him from the king that came before him, Saul. Because when Saul was confronted, Saul didn't own up to it. But David did. David got honest. And here is probably the most amazing part of the story. I mean, listen to this. How is David still remembered? When the scriptures later speak of David, how do they remember David? A man, what? After God's own heart. Hold on a second. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. And this is how scriptures remember him. What? Now, if I had more time, if I had another week, I would love to spend some time looking at this story from the angle of Bathsheba. Because here's the thing, we're all like David. We all fall, we all mess up, but sometimes we're Bathsheba. Sometimes we're the one getting stepped on. Sometimes we're the one getting fallen on. I don't have enough time to go into this, but in this story, in this narrative, Bathsheba does not end up as a voiceless victim. Now what happened to her is not okay, and it's never okay for things like that to happen. It's never okay. But what we see in the story is that God doesn't abandon her. In fact, she goes on to to play a really prominent role in the royal family. In fact, it's her son, Solomon. Even though he's not the, the, the oldest of David's children, he becomes the next king of Israel. And he takes Israel to a place that it had never been. At the same time, she's in the lineage of Jesus. And so again, what this, this does not justify what happened to her. Hear me when I say that. It does not justify what happened to her. But here's what it does tell us, that God is on the side of the oppressed. That God does not turn a blind eye to the suffering that happens to people. That God is close to the brokenhearted. That God favors those who get pushed off and cast aside. Maybe a question to ask is, do we? Is that where our heart goes? But I'm going to entitle this message, How the Mighty Fall and a Few Get Back Up. Because again, all of us are like David in that we fall. Either we have and we're here and we're dealing with guilt and we're dealing with shame and we're dealing with remorse or we're on our way towards one. We're messing around with something and we're on the edge. 
right? We're, all of us are like David in that we fall. But unlike so many of us, David, when he fell, he didn't stay there. He was able to get back up. And so this morning, what I want us to do is take a look at this narrative, zero in on a few places. We're going to start off by, by taking a look, trying to understand what led to his fall, how to get there, so maybe we can avoid some in our own life. But then we're going to spend the second half of the message taking a look at David's recovery. Y'all with me? Make some noise. There you go. I know you're out there. Might just like that, you know, entertaining that you just you can't think, say, think anything to say. Is that what it is? That's what it is, right? My wife's here, so he say yes. Right? Let's zero in on this narrative a bit. Second Samuel chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, open up there. Second Samuel chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So wait, it's during what time of the year? Spring. What do kings usually do this time of year? They go off to war, but where's David? Is David at war? David stays home, right? We'll come back to that in, in a little bit. He stays at home. He's in Jerusalem. Verse two, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Verse four, then David sent messengers to her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And then she went back home. Now, here's what I, I want to pull out verse four. And we, I read that to you from the NIV, which is probably the version most of you use. But I'll be honest, I don't think this translation really captures what the original Hebrew is saying to us. And so here's, here's how it sounds in the NASB. It's a bit more literal of a translation. But verse 4 in the NASB says that David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. It says that David sent, David took, and David lay. Whole lot of verbs in that short little verse. There's a whole lot of action happening in this one little verse. It moves really quickly. It's because the author's trying to show us something about what's going on here. In fact, Walter Brueggemann, one of the greatest Old Testament scholars, he, he picks up on this, and here's what he says on his commentary of this passage. He says, the action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not last very long. David does not call her by name. He does not even speak to her. There is no conversation. There is no hint of caring, of affection, of love, only lust. I want to hang out with that word for a little bit. Lust. Because I believe that that's really what is behind David's fall. And I also believe that that's what, what's behind many of our falls as well. Now, the trouble is when, when we hear that word lust, we, we tend to think primarily of like sexual desire, right? That's what we tend to think about. And that's part of it. That's certainly part of it, but it's also way bigger than that. And here's what I mean is that scripture teaches that you and I, this is a fancy word for me. You ready for this? That we are integrated beings. I'm like, what in the world do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. It's pretty simple, actually. We are both physical and spiritual creatures, as human beings, we are both physical and we are spiritual. We are physical in the sense that not only do we have a body, you are aware of that, right? Poke your forehead. You got a body, ooh, right? You're solid. You have a body, right? You're welcome for that, by the way. But you are also physical in the sense that you have some natural appetites and desires. You've got some urges in you, right? When you hear that word appetite, what do you immediately think of? 
food, right? That's because you have a natural appetite for food. And it's a very strong appetite. I mean, so strong, in fact, that I could mention some, some sort of food right now, like tacos, and you are no longer with us, right? Like your brain is already at Cantina in Colombia, right? How many of y'all know Cantina? Any Cantina fans in the house? Come on now. Ooh. Ah, oh, Peruvian shrimp tacos. Can I get an amen for those, right? What are we talking about again? Where am I? Right, we have this natural appetite for food, and it's a strong appetite. That's, that's not the only appetite we have as physical beings. We also have a natural appetite for sex, right? And, and, and it's a strong urge as well. But that's not the only appetite. We have the appetite for food. We have an appetite for sex. I know there's some more. I just can't think of them right now. Right? <laughs> but we've got a natural appetite for, for companionship, for friendship, to connect with other people, to be known by other people. It's a part of our physical makeup. We also have a natural appetite for significance. I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I hope today is just a big waste of time. No, we wake up, we wanna accomplish things, we wanna achieve things. We like to push ourselves, we like to grow. Right, which is a natural appetite. It's sort of hardwired into human beings. At the same time, we have a natural appetite for security. We like to protect the people and the things that we care about. This is a part of our makeup. These are strong, God-given urges. That's an important thing for us to hear, is that these appetites, they are not bad. They're God-given. They're just meant to be guided by the spiritual. There's a relationship that's supposed to exist between our physical appetites and spiritual life, namely our life with God. And I love, I love the picture that Genesis chapter two paints for us, right? In, in this creation account, when God creates the first human being, God like molds the human being from the dirt. It's just a really beautiful picture, right? And so there's this body laying there. And then God breathes breath into this human being, gives it life. He breathes spirit into this, and it comes to life. See, the spirit is meant to animate, guide, direct, give life and purpose to the physical. They're meant to exist in a particular hierarchy. And here's where you and I get into trouble. You and I get into trouble when that relationship gets messed up. You and I get into trouble when our appetites start calling the shots. In particular, here's maybe how you define lust. You know what lust is? Lust is whenever we look to a physical appetite to meet a deeper spiritual need. That's what lust is. It's when our appetites and our urges start calling the shots, take precedence over our spiritual life, namely our life with God. And it's not hard to point out how this shows up in some really destructive ways in our lives. I mean, when our appetite for food gets elevated to an improper place, and you know, I am preaching to myself right now. I'm still thinking about tacos. But when our appetite for food gets elevated to a proper place, and we can laugh about this, but some of y'all who share my struggle, you know this is frustrating. The refrigerator becomes our place of worship. Where do you go when you're feeling lonely? What do you do when you're feeling rejected? Go to the fridge. And again, for some of you, that's not a problem, and you, and you can kind of smirk at that, but for those of us who've had to live with that for our lives, we know the frustration there, don't we? I mean, when, when, our, when our appetite for significance gets elevated to an improper place, we will work so hard to find our validation, our self-worth, not just from what we're able to achieve, but what we're able to achieve compared to everybody else. 
It gets all out of whack. It gets haywire. Or our appetite for security. When that, when that gets out of place, then what ends up happening is it's not too long because you can't ever keep things safe enough. It gives way to things like worry and anxiety. Am I speaking to anybody right now? Do you know a thing or two about this? This lust, it's not just about sex. But it certainly has to do with it. I mean, this is lust. And it's dangerous, y'all. It is so dangerous. For one, lust is deceptive. Here's what I mean by that. It's built on a lie. You see, lust always promises way more than it can actually deliver. In fact, psychologists, people, people who study how the brain works, they have a term for this. It's called impact bias. And basically, whenever you get hooked or you get latched onto something, there's something you really want, right? There's a desire or an urge that's kind of out of control. Here's what your brain will do. Your brain will lie to you. It'll tell you that if you give in to this thing, it's going to feel like this good. But then when you actually do indulge in that, it's really only about like this good. So there's always a letdown afterwards. Right? You get so fucking, man, if I just, oh, it's going to feel great. There's always a letdown. It never delivers. And so when we do eat the whole box, when we do go to the computer screen at night when everybody else is in bed, when we do finally get our hands on that thing we think we have to have, how do you feel afterwards? Usually emptier, hungrier, lonelier than we did before. It's based on a lie. At the same time, it's incredibly destructive. What I mean by that is there's always a cost involved. And when we indulge in a lust, when we give ourselves into something, there's always a cost involved. Again, psychologists have a term for this. It's called focalism. And what, what your brain does in this point is when you, really, when you really zero in on this, right, when this sort of urge appetite's out of control, what your brain does is it makes that thing that you want crystal clear and it sort of clouds everything else out. And the things that we don't tend to see are the costs involved. That's why you can give yourself that pep talk, you know? I'm giving up sweets. And I know that if I, if I, if I persevere through this, I do it for six weeks, I'm going to be looking good, I'm going to be feeling good. And you're fine with that until what? Until somebody sets a piece of chocolate cake down in front of you. And then like, you stop thinking about all that, right? You don't think about the extra days it's going to take you to, to get rid of it. Anyway, what I'm talking about, right? There's always a cost involved. Well, if you give into that affair, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you the respect of your children. Maybe your grandchildren. Maybe you, you, go, you go, go to that computer screen, you go to that website, you, you indulge in the pornography, I promise you it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you intimacy, real intimacy. That false into intimacy you get, it's going to cost you real intimacy. Either with your current spouse or one day when you finally get married, it's going to be cost. That shortcut you take in your business deals, it's going to cost you. could cost you your reputation. Now you can throw yourself into your company and your business. You can get that profit. You can, you can hit that mark. You can start that business. But if that, if that gets out of control, what's that going to cost you? In terms of your family, there's always a cost involved. Lust is incredibly destructive. And here, here's what I hope you hear more than anything is that the fall begins long before the bottom ever falls out. 
I'm gonna say that again, make sure you heard me, is that the fall begins long before the bottom ever falls out. David's fall did not happen when he sent for Bathsheba. The fall started long before that. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. This is when David's fall began. David made himself the exception to the rule. David opened the door for compromise. See, the fall begins long before the bottom ever drops out. More than, some of us in this room, more than anything, you know what we need this morning? We need a wake-up call. Because there's something in our lives, or there's somebody in our lives that we're messing around with, that we're opening ourselves up to, and we're saying that it's not a thing, but we know it's a thing. The text messages with that person who's not your spouse, they're not, they're not that innocent. Or that thing you think you've got a handle on, it's really an addiction, isn't it? It's unhealthy. I mean, there's something in your life. You, you, you think you can head down this road and you can just turn it around whenever you want. It doesn't work that way. Or you, you can kind of get right up next to this line and you kind of kind of enjoy it, but you, you think, not me, everybody else, they might, they might struggle with this, not me, I got a handle on it. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I'm, I'm working, sit, sit down with somebody in sort of counseling session and they're going through an issue and, and even before they tell me what happened, they give me an idea and I say, well, did it probably start like this? Yeah. And then did, did this happen after that? Yeah, yeah. Like a brain reader. How'd you know? It's not a new story. similar story, one we've heard over and over and over again. You see, the fall begins long before the bottom ever drops out. The Bible has a word for things like this in our lives. You know what it is? Run. Flee. Do whatever it is you have to do to get it out of your life because it's coming after you. Maybe one of the reasons why you and I struggle with some of the same things over and over again is because we want to. We won't get it out of our lives because we still kind of want to leave a door open so that we can give into it if we want to. Man, I'm telling you, it's destructive and there is always a cost involved. And my hope is that some of us in this room, we can save each other from a few falls right now because there's something you need to get out of your life. Now, the last thing I want to do is, is, is to beat anybody up based on something that's going on in your life. My hope is that this wakes you up. And I, I can imagine that there are many of us in this room we're on the other side of it. We've blown it. We've messed up. And sure, if we got a chance to go back and to talk to somebody who was about to make the same mistake that we did, what would we say to them? Don't do it. Don't go there. It's not as great as you think it is. But what I want to do now, I want to finish our time by discussing, I mean, what does life look like on the other side of that, right? What does life look like after you've blown it? How do you recover? Because again, David, and like us, he blew it, but David was able somehow, some way to get back up. And so I want to take an insider look at David's recovery because the scriptures, they offer us this unique perspective on David's life. On the one hand, we have all sorts of narrative, like, like the story that we read about from 2 Samuel today. It's narrative. It gives us a picture of David's outside life. We see the action. We see what he does. We see what happens to him. But at the same time, in the scriptures, we have over 70 Psalms that are accredited to David attributed to him. 
that he wrote. In Psalm 51, it's traditionally believed to be the psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by Nathan. And it is really lifted up and is held up as sort of the quintessential psalm of repentance. Repentance is a church word. You've been around here for a while, you've probably heard it before, but what does it mean, right? Repentance is essentially how, it's how you and I turn it around after we blow it. It's, it's how we get back up after we fall. In Psalm 51, David offers us a picture of what does it look like? How do you recover well? And here's where it starts. Psalm 51, verse one. David prays, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. This prayer begins with David looking up. I mean, David right there, he appeals not once but twice to God's unfailing love. In the Hebrew, this is that word that we learned in the previous series on Ruth, hesed. And it's talking about God's unwavering, unconditional love and acceptance. Now, don't get me wrong. David knows what he's done. He's well aware of it. We'll, we'll see that here in a moment as we continue in the psalm. David knows what he's done. He knows his sin. But at the same time, David knows his God. One commentator says this about, about how, the, how the psalm begins. It says, the prayer is not merely an expression of human remorse or preoccupation with failure and guilt. It looks beyond self to God. And I love this part. Hope this sinks in and lays hold to the marvelous possibilities of God's grace. Marvelous possibilities of God's grace. David looks up. David knows no amount of failure can disqualify him from the marvelous possibilities of God's grace. Because my question for you is, do you know that? Is this the God you worship? Because hear me when I say this. Perhaps the fundamental reason why so many of us struggle to get back up after a fall is because the God that we worship doesn't look like Jesus. One of my favorite passages of scripture to go to when, when this is sort of showing up in my life or, or one that I recommend people to read and reflect on. This is a powerful passage. It comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And my prayer is that this is you. If you're here, I mean, you're, you're smothered with guilt, smothered with shame. I want you to hear these words. Like, not just listen to them, but hear them. The author says to us, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, raise your hand. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Listen to this, verse two. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Y'all say, whoa. This God is in the forgiving business. This God is in the forgiving business. I love the imagery here. It refers to Jesus in two ways. One, he's an advocate before the Father. This word advocate, it's, it's a legal term. It's a, essentially, it's a defense attorney. So it's somebody who's pleading the case of somebody who's busted, somebody who's guilty. They're standing in front of the judge saying, listen, they messed up, but I think you should forgive them. But here's what I love the image of. Who's the judge in this case? It's a father whose idea it was to send the advocate in the first place. I think this is meant to be sort of funny. I mean, imagine this playing out in a courtroom. Hey, I think we should forgive them. 
Me too. I think that's a great idea. Let's forgive him. Okay, let's, there's a whole lot of forgiveness in this verse. I don't know about you, that's good news. Y'all think that's good news? Could you make some noise for that or something? I mean, come on, give me an amen. Do something. You're forgiven. You're forgiven at the same time refers to Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here's what's funny, a little history lesson. If you look throughout history, you look all over the world, you look at ancient religions, ancient people, everywhere you look, you find that human beings have had some sort of practice of offering sacrifices to the gods in order to appease them because they're mad at them. It's all over the place. It's widespread. You know what this tells me? This tells me that from the beginning of time, human beings have been looking for ways to deal with guilt. I mean, as soon as you hear that word, something comes to mind, doesn't it? A past failure, a secret nobody knows about. And we can even feel guilt and shame for the stuff that happens to us. The stuff that's not even our fault. And what we do, we, we may not worship little statues, right? We think that sounds so archaic, but don't get me wrong. We still got our ways of making sacrifices to the gods. But what the author of First John says, you don't have to do that. When Jesus got up on that cross, he took all that guilt. He took all that shame upon himself. This is not an idea, folks. This is an event. It happened. Jesus took all of that on himself. And now you don't have to carry it. It's been sent away. Y'all make some noise for that too. And you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. I mean, a couple months ago, here's what happened. Hopefully this kind of brings it home for you. My wife and I, we were at Cantina in Columbia, enjoying a nice meal together. It was a date. No kids, just us. And, you know, I, I, I went, I, I was living large. I ate me some tacos. And, of course, when it comes time to, to pay the bill, our waitress tells us, actually, you know what? The bill's been taken care of. Somebody anonymously paid for our bill. And if you're in this room, thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll be there again in like two weeks. I'm just kidding. No, but seriously, thank you. That was really kind. And it sort of caught, up, caught us off guard because you'd expect maybe something like that to happen closer to the church right here in Lexington. It'd be all the way in Columbia, somebody paying for our bill. Tell me something. How silly would it have looked for me in that restaurant when somebody tells me my bill's been taken care of for me to stand up on a table and say, no, I'm going to pay this bill. I'm going to make sure that I pay this bill. How silly would that look? But this is how some of us live our lives. Man, we wallow in shame. We beat ourselves up. We won't let ourselves win because we think we're paying some sort of penance that Jesus has already taken care of. You're forgiven. And my hope is that we can be a whole bunch of people who, we're not just folks who grew up in church. My hope is that you hear this. Because I believe that as a preacher and as one of your pastors who really cares about you, the greatest thing I can do for you is proclaim the good news that the God of the universe, the God that holds all of this together is a God who looks like Jesus. And I believe the greatest thing you can do for yourself is to trust that. I mean, what if this wasn't just another Sunday morning? What if this morning things actually changed in your life? What if you actually believe that? You're here in a little bit, as we wrap this service up, you're gonna get a chance to respond to that. But I, also, I want you to decide right now, you're gonna respond when that opportunity is given. Man, David started by looking up. He looked up, but then in light of that, you know what David did next? In light of knowing who his God is, David was then able to courageously look in. Listen to what else it says in Psalm 51. 
Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Verse two, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And these three verses, I kid you not, David uses pretty much every single Hebrew word there is for sin. He uses all of them. He throws them all in there. I know my sin. I know my transgressions. Tell me, to the ways in which David has blown it, is he ignoring it or is he facing it? Is he dealing with it or is he stuffing it? He's dealing with it. He's not avoiding it. He's confronting it. I remember reading about this, this study that was done several years ago. It was during, around one of the Olympics. And it was really interesting. It was in Time Magazine, but it was, it was basically these scientists were interested in sort of understanding the science behind the choke, like in the sports world, right? When an athlete chokes, they've got an opportunity to step up to win or do whatever, and they don't. They blow it for whatever reason. And, and, and they're highlighting some of the Olympic athletes, particularly like people who, who run hurdles, which is something I will never do. I'm built like Barney Rubble, right? This is not somebody that that runs hurdles. It's amazing. But you see, a hurdler, it's not just about physical ability, but it's such a mental thing too, of the timing, right? Of how you do it at such a high rate of speed. And so oftentimes when a hurdler messes up, guess what? That stays with them for a long time. That's a hard thing for them to get past. And so what they did in this study is they took these athletes and they made them watch the video of when they blew it, of when they choked. And they studied how their brain reacted to it. And what they found was in that moment, sort of the emotional center of their brain was going haywire. It was going nuts. It was firing all over the place. While the part of their brain that controls sort of their motor skills, their body, it was shut down. They're essentially locked up. They're emotionally reliving that moment. Then after they watched the video, they sat them down and they had them talk about it. They had them talk about the moment. How are you feeling in that moment? What happened? What was going through your head? And they had him talk about, well, how would you avoid that in the future? What are some strategies that you can, you can use to sort of improve that? Just talk about it. And then they made him go back and watch the video again. You know what was crazy? Is the brain started to regulate. That emotional center, you know what it did? It started to quiet down a little bit. While the part that controls their motor skills started to wake up. And the more they watched the video, guess what? The more it regulated. In fact, one researcher summed it up by saying this. said, the general practice of addressing failure is absolutely vital. If athletes are going to move on from this, the practice of addressing failure is absolutely vital. You see, the only way to deal with it is to deal with it. But this is probably the complete opposite of the way that many of us were raised or the habits that we've learned since. Some of us are taught, how do you deal with it? You don't deal with it. Sweep it under the rug. Just keep it in the closet. Act like it's not there. Stuff it. Don't talk about it. But here's what I know. We can pretend like it's not there, but it's still owning you. It's still controlling what you do. What I've found is when we own our junk, our junk stops owning us. Amen. What is it that you need to bring out into the light? What do you need to confess? And I'll point this out. When God confronted David, he didn't do it in a room by himself. You know what he did? He sent another person. That's why we have small groups, folks. 
And somebody said to this past week that they wish that our small groups could be confessing communities. Man, in a place like Lexington, think about how counterculture that is. Everybody walking around like you got it all together. I know you're lying. Man, but to have groups of people we can trust, where we can bring this stuff out in the open so it stops controlling us. And we experience the freedom that's available to us in Jesus Christ. If you don't have a small group, I'd love to help you find one. It's a great time of the year to be ready for that. Now, not only did David look in, but ultimately David moved forward. Here's what I mean. Go back to Psalm 51. Some of y'all thinking too much about Cantina right now. You need to rein it in. We're almost there. Verse 10, listen to this. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Did you hear that? Create in me a pure heart. Steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Here's, here's what David's after. Nothing short of transformation. David's not just sorry about what happened. David's not just sorry about being caught. You know what David wants? David wants to change. David wants to be different on the other side of this. David's repentance is thorough. And here's the thing, folks. If our repentance is not thorough, if our response to God's grace isn't thorough, then here's what happens. Our commitment to Jesus is just circumstantial. Our commitment to Jesus is just seasonal. Here's what I mean. When we face a crisis, when we mess up, when we blow it, we're about to lose things, where are we? Where, where do we tend to be? We're back in church. We're praying all the time, aren't we? I mean, this, this is when we make, we make bargains with God, isn't it? God, if you fix this, how many of y'all, I've done this. God, if you take care of this, here's what I promise. I promise I'm going to give you everything I got. I'll be at church every week. And then like a year after the crisis, where are we at? We're right back where we were before the crisis. So our commitment to Jesus is circumstantial. It's just about resolving the tension that we're feeling in the midst of it. And here's why this is dangerous. If that's the way we live, we're never going to experience change. Our life is going to be this revolving cycle. These high peaks, these high valleys. Nothing's going to really ever change in our lives. But I don't know about you. I don't got time for that. I want things to actually change in my life. Is that what you want? One final thought, and I'll let you go. Well, maybe. There has to be a little bit of a conversation around the difference between experiencing the consequences of the choice that we made and condemnation. See, the mistake we often make in the midst of this on the other side of a fall is that we mistake consequences for condemnation. David messed up. David was forgiven by God. He was loved by God, but that didn't mean that he didn't have to face consequences for what he did. In fact, you read the rest of David's life. He, he, he had to handle consequences from this from there on out. His relationship with his, with his sons Really complicated. Really complicated. The danger is we cannot mistake that for condemnation. Here's what I know. After we've blown it in some big ways, there are some relationships that may never go back to how they were before. And where I believe that forgiveness is always a good idea, reconciliation sometimes just isn't possible. There's some relationships that people just need to move away from. At the same time, there's some marriages and there's some, been some breaches of trust. I, believe, I always think there's opportunity for marriages to come back from that. Believe me. I believe in a God performance resurrection. 
But that doesn't mean things aren't going to be different now. There are some other things that we're going to have to put in place. Man, you make destructive choices with your body for long enough, there's consequences for that. You make some, some under-the-table deals in your business, you're not honest, there's consequences for that. Man, you, make, you make poor financial decisions, you live your life in the, in the bondage of debt, there's consequences for that. Retirement's not going to look the way you want it to. But we can't mistake that for condemnation. Because when we do, the lie we buy into is that it can never be good again. Unless it goes back to how it was before, it never be good again. But we gotta treat it like a loss. It's a death. And I think when we open ourselves up to the fact, no, God hasn't condemned us. This is consequences. Then we can believe that just because it can't be like it was before doesn't mean it can't be good. Can I get an amen on that? And here in a moment, the, the band's gonna lead us through one last song. And I believe that this is, there, there's some messages that, that we hear that ask us to respond. And I think this is one of those messages. And I'm gonna tell you, the front is open for you. If you wanna come down here during the song and you wanna pray, there's some business you need to do with God, I wanna encourage you to do it and bring somebody with you. I mean, maybe for you, there's something in your life you're caught up in and you've been telling yourself it's innocent, it's not a problem, you know it's a problem. Maybe it's time to come and acknowledge that. Maybe you need to look up. You've never opened yourself up to this God who looks like Jesus. And guilt and shame has been running your life for far too long. Why not today? Maybe there's something you need to come clean about. Whatever it is, as we sing this last song, if you want to come forward and come to the front and do business with God, I want to encourage you to do so. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I pray that you fall on this room right now. I pray for the people in this room that, that there's something needs to happen that it happens today. This isn't just another Sunday morning where they come in here and they come out, but this is a Sunday when you get a hold of them, when you change things when you set them free, when they come to know you in a real way, move, Holy Spirit, fall fresh on us. And I pray that in the midst of all of this, we can come to trust in this God who performs resurrection, who brings life from dead places. Move among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.